going to do something uh, somewhat different today. Um, I'm going to just uh, share some thoughts with you um, before we even have the first episode because of the, the date on the calendar uh, and, and what happened a year ago. Uh, but I'm going to state up front that, you know, this is um, thoughts that I want to share uh, as a white guy, primarily directed towards other people who are uh, white identified like me. And, you know, in this coming week, um, you will likely and, and rightly see many posts, articles, videos, and more uh, reflecting on this past year since a white supremacist uh, murdered people in a supermarket in Buffalo, New York. Uh, if you only have time to hear or see or read one thing, I suggest you choose something else. Uh, I suggest you choose something written by uh, an author or spoken by um, a person who is black or African-American, whose community was directly targeted and impacted. Um, but if after hearing from folks whose voices should remain in the foreground, um, you're someone who's white identified like me, and you're still wondering how to live into your values uh, in the face of encroaching white supremacy, please listen on. The heavy anniversary of May 14th is coming up in Buffalo, when a white supremacist ambushed and murdered 10 innocent and unsuspecting African Americans in their neighborhood grocery store. In the aftermath of this really sickening and senseless tragedy, seemingly the entire community came together to condemn this act uh, and pledge to work toward change. This represented a cross-section of those most directly impacted and targeted because of their race, as well as many white-identified folks who thought that this kind of racial terror was a thing of the distant past or maybe only took place in distant places. What happened in Buffalo was in many ways a microcosm of what happened nationally in 2020 following the high-profile murders of Armand Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. And so the ensuing societal reckoning is one not just with our past but also with our present racial divisions. You know, how these create daily stressors for black and brown folks and indigenous folks and what these divisions mean for long term opportunity and for our entire community. But nationally, as well as locally, this moment of reckoning seems to be fading. You know, the kind of sickening and shocking monstrous act carried out by a white supremacist at this supermarket in a local community is the extreme outcome of racial prejudice, in many ways it's a logical one, right? If we have a lived reality where people who are white identified are disconnected and detached from black and brown folks, it's easy to replicate inside of ourselves this socially created perception of people who are somehow fundamentally different and less than ourselves, Right of people who are less than human. And despite the varied circumstances, these killings are all ultimately made possible by this one thing, the often subtle but persistent dehumanization of black and brown people. Right, And if we believe someone is not fully human, if we believe someone's not fully capable of the emotions, experiences, insights, and achievements that we see within ourselves, 
it becomes easy to justify the lack of access to systems that we all rely on, right? Education, banking, transportation, healthcare. It's easy to justify or dismiss those disparities. It becomes easy to justify large-scale segregation, disinvestment, and neglect, right? That disinvestment, that neglect, then perpetuates disparate conditions, that reinforces disparate outcomes, and then this retroactively justifies that disinvestment, and it continues the self-reinforcing cycle of prejudice and disparity. Social Injustice Warriors. There exists today a calculated and concerted effort by certain individuals and organizations to push back the important but incomplete public conversation about the ways that we are not yet the equal society that we would all prefer to believe that we are. You know, those stoking white racial resentment today are cynical and self-serving forces, and they consolidate their power and strength through scapegoating and fear. But recent legal depositions and private text messages reveal that some of the loudest voices spilling hatred and resentment don't even believe the lies and vitriol they spout. Then why do they do it? These voices are building their own empires by tearing at the fabric of a just and moral society, right? by convincing good-hearted and in most cases predominantly white-identified people to act against their own value systems and against their own self-interest. This isn't new. In fact, the American racial hierarchy was created and codified into law in the early 1700s as a deliberate attempt to divide people and pit them against each other, and yes, against their own self-interests. Now, if you're not familiar with this, just look up Bacon's Rebellion and the Virginia Slave Codes. In one particularly revealing present-day text exchange, one high-profile television talk show host who has built a comfortable empire on resentment and vitriol revealed the impact of the constant barrage of hateful rhetoric. In a racially-laden text exchange, this person reveals the terrifying extent of their own bloodlust while they root for a mob of their supporters to murder someone who doesn't agree with their shared bigoted view. Quote, Then, somewhere deep in my brain, an alarm went off. This isn't good for me. I'm becoming something I don't want to be. End quote. It's left to speculation whether this television host is aware of the impacts that their words are having on their audience. Right? It's not just surfacing, but crystallizing and heightening latent racial resentment. Right? And are their audience members looking into a mirror and seeing what they've become as this suddenly shocked host did? Or are they seeing around themselves reflections of their new hardened viewpoints in the faces of their family, friends, and acquaintances who have been similarly radicalized? Decades ago, Kurt Vonnegut, who you may know as the author of Slaughterhouse-Five, which was inspired by his survival of the firebombing of Dresden as a young prisoner of war during World War II, Kurt Vonnegut wrote another novel called Mother Night. And this is a book about a double agent who's broadcasting secret messages to the Allies through a popular pro-Nazi radio show. But eerily, this protagonist realizes too late, quote, we are what we pretend to be, so we must be careful about what we pretend to be, end quote. It, it makes me wonder whether or not those who have used racial animus and division to their own ends, despite whatever espoused core values they hold, have now in fact become what they have pretended to be. 
that's not me. There seems to be an unending stream of manufactured controversies, right, about anti-woke, anti-critical race theory, a disturbing level of book banning, right? Whether this all achieves the ultimate aim of sort of criminalizing any unvarnished or clear-eyed look at American history, it's nevertheless achieving its objectives, right? It has contorted the bounds of social norms and called into question some of the fundamental beliefs about a pluralistic and diverse American society that I grew up with, even in a small white rural town in the Reagan 80s. Those of us who are outside of the increasing circle of white national extremism may consider ourselves immune from the impacts of this disturbing current of, of hatred and, and intolerance. But are we aware of the ways in which these messages may lead to subtle changes in our own behavior or even in our own beliefs? You know, there's a fear of stepping on a cultural fault line or the potential for conflict in a polite society. And it's contributing to the silence of too many well-meaning white people and, and predominantly white organizations. Now, at an individual level, there is now a real or, or imagined threat of public reproach, right, of online harassment or of being canceled. And for organizations, there's a fear of public controversy or of losing support, losing funding, losing clients. This has made the easier and safer choice to, to back away from the actions that our morals and values would otherwise compel us to take. In this stepping back from controversy, manufactured controversy, is now happening even for many of those that found a voice for justice in 2020, when the country seemed, albeit briefly, almost united for racial justice. But that stepping back is precisely the point, right? This is how the forces at play for racial bigotry intend to win not by making a compelling case to convert you to white nationalism. There's no compelling case to be made. But by compelling you to be silent, right, to duck conflict and controversy, to be content locking your values and voice in a tight box of your comfort zone, convinced that you are different and good, and that knowing that is enough. But it's not enough. If what we crave is comfort and safety for ourselves, what do we give up? The answer is simple, but it's difficult to hear. We surrender our own better angels. We tacitly consent to living in a world that fails to match our values, our beliefs, and our highest aspirations. When we allow others to have their full humanity denied, we deny ourselves the ability to fully realize our own. beyond comfort. The despicable and cowardly acts carried out by a white person who was radicalized into white supremacy here in Buffalo did not create but did expose the pain and divisions within our community. But, but let's be clear, these killings exposed the pain and division within our community only to those of us who are white identified and have had the luxury of being able to ignore it. For people in the black community, those conditions have been impossible to ignore. The resilience shown by these communities prior to and in the wake of this tragedy is undeniable, and their compassion is undeniably human. It's not for us as people who are white identified to prescribe remedies for how these communities heal or what's to come next for them, but we should be resourcing and supporting the healing and rebuilding process. 
But what then is the active role of being well-meaning and white in this moment? The answer is, again, simple, but it's difficult to hear. To be uncomfortable. To understand your values and beliefs and to recognize, speak, and act when things you care about don't align with them. Think about the organizations and institutions you're a part of you know, and question whether or not they are committed to fairness and justice in the same way that you are. Call the question if you're not sure. Ask what concrete actions are being taken to create the better world you believe can and should exist. Do not let your discomfort keep you silent. Recognize you do not have all the answers, but you do have enough questions and resolve to begin a meaningful and lasting dialogue. On May 14th of 2022, a terrible and uncomfortable moment was created through which many of us finally saw our whole community in a new light. Do not let that moment fade or that discomfort. Our own humanity depends on it.